Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute, both everybody who has braved the frigid temperatures to come to the nice warm Cato Auditorium. We, we have everything. You, you'll see the upholsteries in red to make you feel even warmer. Um, and, and everybody online who either doesn't live close to Cato or doesn't have the guts to go out in the really cold weather. Um, my name is Neil McCluskey. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Um, and uh, welcome to uh, Preschool Education, What the Research Says. Uh, now, in his last State of the Union, of course, we have another State of the Union coming up in just a couple of weeks, but in his last State of the Union, President Obama proposed significantly expanding preschool programs with $75 billion in federal money over 10 years. And he said this, he said, study after study shows that the sooner a child begins learning, the better he or she does down the road. But today, fewer than three in 10 four-year-olds are enrolled in a high-quality preschool program. Most middle-class parents can't afford a few hundred bucks a week for private preschool. And for poor kids who need help the most, this lack of access to preschool education can shadow them for the rest of their lives. Tonight, I propose working with states to make high-quality preschool available to every child in America. Every dollar we invest in high-quality, early education can save more than $7 later on by boosting graduation rates, reducing teen pregnancy, even reducing violent crime. Now, there is a lot going on in that statement, discussing, quote-unquote, study after study, showing that sooner a child starts to learn, the better, discussion of high-quality programs, and the, uh, the statistics that every PK dollar can save $7 down the road. But contrary, I think, to how that can sound, uh, there, there's not unanimous agreement on the effectiveness, or at least what the research tells us about the effectiveness of pre-K programs. I think even more importantly, when we uh, participate in the pre-K debate, and as you read about the pre-K debate, as is, I think, the case in many public policy debates, the research generally kind of gets pushed to the margins in these debates, and people will cherry pick whatever finding they think is most useful to make their point. Um, but I think as we address how best to prepare our students for their lives, our children for their futures, it is crucial to honestly assess what we do know, what we don't know, and what we need to look more into about preschool education and preschool services to see what is likely to work and what is likely not to work. So joining us today to do this is an outstanding panel of experts who've dedicated much of their professional lives to researching education and early childhood development. Now I'm gonna introduce them in the order in which they're gonna speak, uh, and then I will sit down and they can begin to tell you the really useful, uh, interesting things. Although their bios are very interesting, so let me just give those to you real quickly. So first is Professor David Armour. He's Professor Emeritus of Public Policy in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University, where he teaches graduate courses in multivariate statistics, culture and policy, social theory and policy, and program evaluation. From 2002 to 2005, he served as the director of the PhD program at, in the School of Public Policy. He received his PhD from Harvard, where he also studied, or served on the faculty as assistant and associate professor from 1965 to 1972. Following a visiting professorship at UCLA uh, from 72 to 1973, he joined the RAND Corporation as a senior social scientist where he conducted research on substance abuse, education, health, and military manpower policy from 1973 to 1982. He was a candidate for Congress in 1982 and in 1985 was elected to the Los Angeles Board of Education. 
From 1986 to 1989, Professor Armour was Principal Deputy and Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Management and Personnel. He's conducted research and written widely in the general area of social policy with special emphasis on education, civil rights, and military manpower issues. Between 1999 and 2005, he served on several National Academy of Science committees studying various issues in military recruiting. He's consulted on and testified as an expert witness in more than 40 school desegregation and educational adequacy cases. Next, we have Professor Deborah Phillips. Her main interests are in early child development, environmental influences on development, child poverty, and the intersection of child development and public policy. She is currently involved in the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development's multi-site longitudinal study of the developmental effects of child care and continues her research on the child care workforce. She's also interested in the care of young children with disabilities. Professor Phillips has served on numerous task forces and advisory groups that address child and family policy issues, including the Task Force on Meeting the Needs of Young Children of the Carnegie Corporation, and the Research Task Force of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Advisory Committee on Head Start Quality and Expansion. Uh, Professor Phillips also directed the Board of Children, Youth, and Families at the National Academy of Sciences and held positions in the U.S. Congress. Yale University's Bush Center in Child Development and Social Policy and the National Association of Education of Young Children. Her co-edited volume, From Neurons to Neighborhoods, The Science of Early Child Development, was published by the National Academy Press. Uh, Professor Phillips holds a BA from Stanford, Master's and PhD from Yale University. On my far right, we have Dr. Grover uh, J. Whitehurst. Uh, Russ Whitehurst is the Herman and George R. Brown Chair and Director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at the Brookings Institution. Previously, he was Director of the Institute of Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Educational Research and Improvement, Chair of the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and Academic Vice President of the Merrill Palmer Institute. He received his PhD in experimental child psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1970. His specializations include program evaluation, teacher quality, preschools, national and international student assessments, reading instruction, educational technology, and education data systems. Finally, on my far left is Professor William Gormley. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Pittsburgh and his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he studied public policy. He's taught at the State University of New York, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he was also the Associate Director of the Robert LaFollette Institute of Public Affairs, and has been a Professor of Government and Public Policy at Georgetown University since 1991. He's the author of numerous books, including Everybody's Children, Child Care is a Public Problem, and Voices for Children, Rhetoric and Public Policy. In addition, he is co-director of the Center for Research on Children in the U.S., or CROCUS, and principal investigator for the Oklahoma Pre-K Project. Now, uh, I've seen on the internet and other people just talking about the idea that we won't get a fair hearing on preschool education because this is the Cato Institute and we're against preschool programs. Well, I want to assure everybody that I, at least, will have to be a totally fair moderator because everybody here has some sort of leverage over me. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, so both professors here on my left could have my degree rescinded <laughs> if I wasn't fair to them. <laughs> Professor Armour was my dissertation advisor, so he could have my dissertation and my PhD rescinded. And finally, Dr. Whitehurst was the head of the Institute for Education Sciences, 
which is in charge of the National Education or Center for Education Statistics, so he could have my whole educational record wiped out as if I never went to school at all. So now knowing that I will have to be fair to everyone, I will turn the podium over to Professor Armour. Well, I certainly hope I won't have to rescind your PhD. Um, thank you, uh, Neil, for putting this uh, program together. Um, it is a very important uh, public policy issue and something that I've been doing research on for um, a while. I'm using, I think I'm the only one, the speaker is using PowerPoint. No, 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 I am too. Well, we have two. I'm sorry. I was going to say, because of my, <laughs> You're advanced, not alone. <laughs> my advanced age, it keeps me on track and um, <laughs> hope I use this right. So I'm going to tell you what I think the research uh, tells us about the effectiveness of preschool. I have an outline. Here's what I want to cover. I'm going to describe the research findings as I see them. Uh, what I believe to be the general conclusions from this research. Um, I'm going to illustrate a research design problem that I think accounts for some of the differences in the findings of these different research studies. And then I'm going to end with some policy recommendations. I, the research findings uh, I'm going to put in three, uh, three major categories. First, we have some outstanding national evaluations of the Head Start program uh, using randomized experimental designs. Uh, these are the type of research designs the Department of Education believes is the gold standard and the, and the, the way we should evaluate all social programs. Uh, Head Start, of course, is the largest federal uh, uh, preschool program. Been in effect for uh, quite a few years, serving about a million uh, children at a cost of about $8 billion a year. This, these national evaluations done by Mathematica, an outstanding firm, show no lasting effects. There is a preschool year effect, but no effect that lasts into the kindergarten, first grade, or third grade. Uh, this applies both to cognitive skills as well as social and behavioral skills. So that's the first important uh, finding. Oh, I did something wrong. Uh, the second um, category of findings are several evaluations of state-sponsored programs that I'm calling high-quality, uh, so-called high-quality. These include uh, programs in New Jersey, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Boston, Massachusetts. And these evaluation studies have shown much larger effects than Head Start. All of these studies have in common the use of a method called RDD. I'm going to talk more about that later because it's an important uh, difference. These are not experimental design studies. Um, <clears throat> by high quality, generally is meant that these programs require a certified teacher, just like other K-12 uh, teachers. Unlike um, Head Start, there's a qualification in Head Start, but you do not have to uh, have a regular educational credential. They're also state-approved curriculum, and that, that's also believed to be a better curriculum that these states have than what's used in Head Start. Uh, but recently, just this summer, the most recent evaluation of a high-quality state program, the one in Tennessee, uh, shows no lasting effect. The results are very similar to 
um, head start. Uh, the difference in the Tennessee study is it used a randomized experimental design just like Head Start. Uh, what I conclude from these studies is that high quality is not the reason for the larger effects in Tulsa, New Jersey, and Boston. Uh, the larger effects, I believe, are due to the unique research design problems that these studies use uh, called RDD. Uh, which can inflate test scores. And I'm going to spend a minute trying to explain that. I have to get into the weeds. I apologize. And it's fairly technical, but it's an important point. When randomized experimental designs are used, uh, both high-quality programs, the one in Tennessee and Head Start, show no lasting benefits. So for me, it is not a quality issue. It's a research design difference. And I, I think there was a tendency to call these programs high quality because they had certified teachers and they were showing positive effects. And Head Start did not have certified teachers, so and it did not show positive effects. But I believe that the difference is due to the research designs. So let me spend a moment trying to explain what that is, because the resolution of this is going to be important to deciding whether there is an effect or not of uh, preschool programs. RDD stands for Regression Discontinuity Design. This is a complex. Uh, design, it's actually, it can, under ideal conditions, resemble uh, and have the accuracy of an experiment. But these, ki these conditions are usually not present uh, in preschool studies, in the, in the preschool environment. One problem is caused, I believe, is caused by dropouts from kindergarten, from preschool. And these dropouts, uh, which affect the treatment group but not the control group, uh, under RDD can inflate the effects of the preschool program. So I'm going to try to illustrate this. Uh, oh, unlike randomized designs, one more point. In a randomized design like Head Start, you can correct. All these programs have dropouts, but you, you have dropouts in both the treatment and, and the control group, and you can control or adjust for it with the pretest. These RDD designs do not have pretest scores. Therefore, there's no way to adjust for differences prior to the start of preschool. So this is a, would be an example of a um, uh, uh, RDD design that has no effect. Uh, the horizontal axis is uh, the time of testing uh, in September of 2011. The right-hand axis are the test scores. So the left-hand group of students are starting pre-K in September of 2011. The right-hand group. Um, starting kindergarten in 2011, they took pre-K pre in the previous year. This result would be what you would expect in RDD if there was no treatment effect. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the growth is explained entirely by the age of the student. However, if there are, and, and there's no pre-K pre effect if this was your result. However, if you lose students, in particular, if you lose students at the low end, either the youngest students, the students who have the least skills, drop out of the pre-K pre program, then we're going to have a result that looks like this. So the treatment group that got pre-K that you're comparing to have uh, inflated test scores because of the dropout problem. In this hypothetical data, if you do the calculation just missing those uh, three cases, we have a very large pre-K effect of about a third of a standard deviation, which education 
uh, uh, researchers would consider to be a very, very large effect. So I believe that's what explains the difference in some of these studies. My recommendations, well, one option, of course, would be to recommend no further government-sponsored pre-K. I think this recommendation would be justified based upon the results of research as I see them. However, it is probably politically uh, infeasible. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of support for pre-K. I think not just because of the belief that it, uh, that it benefits the children cognitively and socially, but because it's a child care program, in effect. And probably Head Start has become a jobs program. There are, there are huge organizations that, uh, that protest any attempt to change funding for, for uh, Head Start. Because of that, I would favor uh, a national demonstration project using a randomized experimental design to test whether these high-quality preschool programs, like the ones in Tulsa or Boston, perform better than Head Start. Uh, if uh, uh, a small amount of Head Start funds could be used to conduct this demonstration, so this could be budget neutral. In my opinion, since we have these conflicting research results, we the responsible uh, solution is to do a national demonstration project before we spend $75 billion on an untested uh, program. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on this uh, frigid day. It's extremely warm up here on stage, so if anybody is cold out there, just just come on up. That's your reward for participating. Yeah, no, it's I'm storing it up, all the all the good calories. Um, I'm um, going to be talking today primarily from a report that was issued um, in October from the Society for Research and Child Development and the Foundation for Child Development that brought together. Um, let's see, do I keep pushing the, the right hand, the right, uh, right here. Here you go. a group of a uh, very interdisciplinary group of uh, scientists um, added to that were 19 reviewers who really looked at um, a vast, or, there are four pages of single spaced um, references and notes in this report um, at the evidence on preschool education. Um, it is um, a collective consensus statement across a dozen of, dozens of studies that use differing methodologies um, conducted across a span of over 50 years. And with regard to conclusions about impacts per se, which really is the nuts and bolts of, I think, what we're, what we're talking about today, um, we relied on meta-analytic work, experimental studies, and regression discontinuity design studies. We did not, for the impact parts of this report, look at uh, other quasi-experimental designs, and notably those that simply use match comparison groups. I know Bill will be talking specifically about the RDD design, since this is also a topic of controversy. So I'm not going to do that in my remarks. Um, the context for the broader report you did say it would be sticky. <laughs> there we go. Um, I'll put them all up here. Of course, is um, the president's proposal and also congressional legislative proposals, all of which are proposing to put more public dollars into preschool education specifically. Um, also, in light of evidence and disparities in utilization of preschool, notably, 
um, income-based disparities in utilization of preschools since universal preschool programs such as those in Boston and Oklahoma are very rare. And the question then becomes, should we really be encouraging um, more equitable enrollment in pre-K? Um, we also have a challenge with immigrant children and English language learners um, getting up to the same levels of preschool enrollment as their counterparts. Um, uh, in terms of the president's proposal in particular, um, it incentivizes um, enrollment in pre-K for families at 200% of the poverty level and below, um, and then encourages access for families above 200% of poverty. There's a very strong emphasis on quality with regard to using rigorous curriculum, uh, degreed teachers who are paid at salaries that degreed teachers earn in the K-12 system, and smaller class sizes. Um, in this report, we go through a bunch of questions, and I'm only going to focus on a couple of them, notably um, impacts short-term and longer-term. Um, but you can see what the full report covers, which you can get on either the SRCD or FCD websites if you're interested. We also, I think we have it outside. Oh, good. Hard Great. copy, Wonderful. so you Thank can also you. pick yeah. it up there. But I want to start by talking uh, briefly about the developmental rationale for quality early childhood education. I should really just say early educational environment. So I'm going to say a little bit about neuroscience. Fasten your seatbelts if you would like. But we now know that the early years are a time of uniquely rapid development of the neurobiological systems that drive lifelong development. We know that this developmental process is exquisitely attuned to the surrounding environment. In fact, our genes are designed to grab up whatever environmental input surrounds them. Um, notably, when children are very young, the most important part is the environment of relationships that surround children. And so in a way, you can think of all early environments that young children are growing up in as interventions. And we can either choose to make them be supportive of the developing neurobiological systems or not. What is new is that we now have a deeper understanding of what this implies about early education. You've seen um, the news about the so-called word gap, which is not new. We've known about the word gap for many, many years. Um, and deeper knowledge about the specific developmental systems that are most profoundly af affected by environmental variation. And they tend to be those that have profound impacts on children's emerging capacities to learn. So in general, this knowledge base casts early educational settings, early family settings, um, as part of a strategy for altering developmental, what we call epigenetic processes that affect the immune system, the stress response system, the reward system, and the executive functioning and self-regulatory systems in young children. Good news is that these systems are highly malleable during the early years and indeed through early adolescence, which means that both preschool environments and elementary environments are shaping, um, and middle school environments, maybe less so high school environments, <laughs> shaping the neurobiology of the developing child. What this says to me is we can't do nothing. Uh, forgive the double negative. 
Okay, so drawing from the report, I'm gonna really focus on what we know about the economic evidence on preschool education and again on the impacts. So uh, what we conclude in this report with regard to the economic impact is that quality preschool, ed quality preschool education is a profitable investment. There are a number of people making this point, of course, across different disciplines. This we know is true of the older uh, demonstration programs. Um, uh, we heard the seven to one figure. Um, that is one figure for the Abbasidarian program, another high intensity demonstration, older program. It was more like two and a half to one. Um, we have to look very carefully at what program we're talking about. I don't personally cite the seven to one figure very much anymore. In Tulsa, we had um, cost benefit analytic work done. Um, and the figure we have for our evidence is three to one. Uh, Boston is generating a similar three to four to one kind of a ratio. So these are programs at scale. I still think that's pretty good. I certainly would put my dollars in something that was gonna give me a three or four to one um, return. Okay. Uh, Short-term impacts, okay. Um, so there is a meta-analysis meta that was recently published. What you do in a meta-analysis quickly is you look across outcomes for many, many, many studies and get sort of a generalized impact, if you will. Um, this meta-analysis meta looked at 84 different studies of preschool conducted from 1965 to 2007. So yes, it included the Tulsa study. It did not include the new Boston study. I don't believe it included the Tennessee study. Um, and they found an average impact of about a third of a year of additional learning as a result of preschool education writ large. What we now have, of course, and very popularized, right, are these high scale, uh, sorry, at scale, high quality state or city preschool programs that are now generating outcome studies. And in both Tulsa and Boston, um, we have produced between a half year and a full year of additional learning as a result of attending these preschool programs. Again, I'm gonna let Bill um, talk about the design issues. I do, however, wanna make the point about why we refer to Tulsa as high quality. It is not because of the degreed teachers, actually. We weren't able to look at the impacts of teacher uh, degree or education, because everyone is the same in Tulsa. They require that teachers have a BA and an early childhood certification. We assert that Tulsa is of high quality because we invested um, a great deal of money going into every single preschool classroom in Tulsa and observing both the instructional and interpersonal transactions between the teachers and their students and counting up the time they spent on academic instruction. And on both of those accounts, the preschool programs in Tulsa scored higher than um, other preschool programs around the country, first of all, not to mention what we've seen in more typical childcare programs across the country. So that's why we refer to Tulsa as um, high quality. Um, there's less firm evidence um, from either of these programs and in the literature as a whole on social emotional outcomes. The Tulsa kids did um, have better, if you will, attentional capacities um, and on a number of other measures, um, just suggesting that they were more engaged in learning in the classrooms. The Boston children, especially the low-income children, had higher executive functioning capacities. What about fade out? 
Perfect. Yeah, that's fine. Um, okay. Um, so most generally, we see a pattern of catch-up, if you will, by the control children in this research, including from the demonstration projects, Perry Preschool, Abecedarian, as well as um, in um, other evidence. I'll talk about Tulsa in just a moment. Um, it's not that learning is lost. It's just that going forward, these kids tend to converge and show the same rate of learning going forward, whether they attended preschool or not. Everyone is concerned about this phenomenon, OK? Um, and there is a very healthy scientific debate about what is going on that I'm sure will be continued in this room momentarily. Um, is it that preschool impacts don't last because preschool doesn't work? Is it that preschool impacts don't last because the K-12 schools fail to sustain the impacts? Is it that they last, but we're not measuring them? You know, there, and there are other possibilities as well. Um, what we do know is that despite fade out and declining control treatment group differences, over time, again, even in the famous Perry Preschool and Abbott-Sedarian programs, that there are large effects in young adulthood on schooling attainment and earnings and crime reduction um, in young adulthood. Um, there is some evidence of enduring, enduring achievement effects in Tulsa, in particular on third grade math scores for boys and for low-income children. Um, they have not been able to observe longer-term effects yet in Boston, and they were not found in Tennessee at first grade. And I think we'll probably, I hope we do, talk about the Tennessee um, study. OK, I'm not going to talk about the um, next couple slides, which are just about subgroup effects, but it's in the report, which I hope you'll pick up. Um, so in conclusion, um, I just want to say that science is, by its nature, um, a cumulative process. It is question-driven. And scientists are, by their nature, skeptical. And I know we all share that <laughs> up here um, on this table. Um, and that is a good thing. And we constantly push each other. And we constantly challenge each other. And that is how science moves forward. So I do appreciate this opportunity to bring us together um, in this room. For me, what are the next key questions? I think we really have to figure out what is going on with fade out. Um, we know that in health, that we have environmental insults. We see absolutely no impacts. And then we come down with cancer, or we come down with cardiovascular disease. Um, and I don't know why we wouldn't, wouldn't expect similar things with regard to positive impacts, where we just don't see what is going on underneath the skin for a while. Um, and then, as we have in the demonstration projects in this field, um, we see positive impacts. Um, we also need to look at you know, what does it do to add um, uh, parent involvement and services to programs, um, as happens in Head Start and in other programs as well. And we need to really understand more and more about the ingredients of high-quality preschool and how do we, how do we achieve that, um, which is an implementation challenge for sure. But better, um, absent a better idea and knowing that environments have profound impacts on the developing child, uh, in my opinion, high-quality preschool passes the test for a high-value public investment in young children's school readiness. Thank you very much. Well, I'm pleased to be here, and I uh, 
thank Neil and Cato for putting together a, a forum on pre-K that focuses on research. I've been involved in many of these in the last couple of years, and typically I'm represented as a researcher, and then there are uh, people with various uh, policy views or uh, uh, emotional points of view. And so it's good to have a panel that, uh, that's focused on the research evidence. Um, in the early 90s, uh, uh, I was spending a lot of time trying to develop uh, uh, programs and interventions to make preschool uh, a better experience. And uh, one day I was out at the Bellport Head Start Center. I was uh, going to make a spiel to, uh, to parents at the beginning of the year to sign so that they would sign the permission form to be in the studies that we were doing. And uh, not many parents uh, showed up. I noticed a young uh, mother, she was, uh, I saw her walking in with two kids and uh, she was there for my presentation. The kids were off uh, being cared for while the parents uh, had a chance to hear about the upcoming year. And when I finished up and was leaving, she was leaving too, I saw that she had her four-year-old by the hand and uh, what I think was probably an 18-month-old in a stroller and she was heading down the road. It was hot, and I uh, stopped and asked her if uh, she needed a ride home, and she accepted it, and I thought I was taking her a couple of blocks. Uh, it turned out that uh, she lived two miles away. She'd walk there with the two kids. I dropped her off at what I think was probably a crack house. And I said, you obviously made a tremendous effort to, to be here this evening. Uh, uh, what's up? And she said, uh, I just want to do what's best for my babies. And for me, that's been a, a, a touchstone uh, ever since. I'm in favor of government investment in pre-K services for families like that and kids like that. I, I think they need it. For me, the question is, how are we going to make an investment that really works rather than investment that simply makes us feel good? And my reading of, of the literature is different from Deborah's and different from, from the panel's consensus. I think it's very hard to design a pre-K program for four-year-olds that produces sustained effects. And let me give you examples of research that support my pessimism about the ability to do that based on what we presently know. First, I'll start with the very research I was trying to get uh, the mom who I was just describing to sign the permission form to be a part of. So what I and my colleagues did for a number of years is we developed shared book reading interventions in pre-K. It's an approach called dialogic reading. It involves uh, uh, switching the usual story circle where the adult holds a book and reads it to the child to an interactive process where children are talking about the book, learning vocabulary. And it's been a very effective intervention. We had demonstrated, uh, we've demonstrated our own research team that it works, it raises vocabulary substantially, and it's been replicated by others. Uh, we did longitudinal research in which we followed various cohorts who were experimentally assigned to receive the intervention or not into elementary school. And what we found uh, to our disappointment is that the effects were sustained through kindergarten, but by the time the kids got to first or second grade, there was no difference between children who'd been exposed as intervention in Head Start and those who had not. The fade out issue that, that Deborah described. When I first came to uh, the U.S. Department of Education uh, to lead the Institute of Education Sciences, uh, one of my uh, 
big bets was on uh, something called the Preschool Education, uh, Curriculum Education Research Project. Uh, the federal government uh, funded 14 randomized trials around the country. Uh, it was competitive, so the people who got the money to put the, the interventions in place and to evaluate them uh, presented uh, positive evidence that what they were going to do worked that would improve uh, pre-K programs. So 14 interventions, 14 uh, new, powerful, presumably powerful curriculum uh, interventions, again, random assignment. Only one of the 14 produced an effect that lasted through the end of kindergarten. 10 of the 14 produced no measurable in impact on any of the 20 outcome measures that were employed at either the pre-K year or the kindergarten year. And yet, I certainly went into this with high hopes that we'd get uh, large impacts. I was talking about, well, we'll get a list here of things that work and don't work, and states can, if they're smart, choose off the list of effective programs. Well, again, uh, disappointing. One that worked for a little while, and uh, most produced no impact at all. <coughs> Even START is a, was a federal program now canceled, uh, in part because of evaluation findings. It was a family intervention give the parents job training, uh, you give the kids high quality pre-K. Uh, uh, two randomized trials, uh, both showing no impact on either parents or kids of the intervention. Uh, and there was no need to do a follow-up because there was no impact at the end of the pre-K uh, pre year. <coughs> Thinking that there was something wrong with even start, we invested in uh, an enhancement program for Even Start that put two uh, seemingly very strong uh, literacy curriculum in Even Start. Again, random assignment, uh, no impact. Early Reading First was another federal effort while I was in the US Department of Education to try to improve uh, pre-K uh, programs. This one used a regression discontinuity design comparing uh, applicants who got the money and those who just missed the cutoff point so they didn't get the money. Uh, very small impacts on just one outcome measure. You've heard from Professor Armour about the National Head Start Impact Study. It's the largest, uh, best piece of social science we have on a large scale uh, preschool intervention. Uh, good impacts at the end of the Head Start year, uh, no sustained uh, impacts. Uh, and uh, a couple of, couple of presenters have mentioned Tennessee's voluntary pre-K program. Again, impacts at the end of the pre-K year, random assignment, no impacts at the, end of, uh, at the end of first grade. So you look at this, and I'm focusing on, uh, on the best design research, research in which random assignment is, is employed. And I don't see how you come away with it thinking we know what to do. I come away with it thinking I wish we knew what to do. Uh, but I don't think we do. And then you look at the larger body of literature, including uh, non-experimental studies of Georgia and Oklahoma, that take advantage of comparing the fact that Georgia and Oklahoma put their universal programs in place in particular years. There are other states that did not. You look at gains on the National Assessment of Educational Progress for Georgia and Oklahoma. You look for gains over the same period for the states that don't have a universal pre-K program. 
the effects are very small and limited to, uh, to particular subgroups. So again, my reading of the literature is that it's hard to have an impact. Not impossible, but it's hard. If you delve into subgroup differences in these studies, you find, I think, without a debate in the research community, that the largest impacts are on the kids in greatest need. They're kids from the most economically disadvantaged families. Over and over again, we find the largest impacts for kids uh, from non-English speaking uh, families. And so I think there are glimmers of hope here, at least in terms of who is most likely to be affected. But I don't think we yet know how best uh, to affect them. So why might that be, and what does it have to do for, uh, uh, for social policy? Well, we've heard Deborah mention some of the possibilities here. Maybe the interventions are not strong enough. Maybe there's fade out, but there's sleeper effects that come back in adolescence and, 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 and in, in adulthood. Maybe we're not measuring the right thing. I think there's another possibility, at least, that needs to be on the table uh, in uh, uh, the biological uh, arena. It's called uh, uh, average expectable environments. There's a demonstration across a range of species that within a range of average environments that the developmental progression occurs and isn't much affected by variation within the normal range. Sandra Scar, developmental psychologist who influenced me a lot uh, a number of years ago, uh, reconceptualized this in terms of parenting as the good enough parent. If you're good enough, lots of things will happen, and there's not much variation across good enough parents in terms of the impact that they have uh, on kids. Uh, the correlation for unrelated siblings raised in the same families on broad outcomes like IQ is about 0.20. And you square that to get the variance accounted for. So about 4% of the variance in outcomes for children who are unrelated, these are adopted kids raised in the same families. Uh, it is a very small impact of, of the family environment. So maybe in 21st century America, with the increasing access to educational resources, a variety of, of, of sorts, increasing awareness by parents that they need to interact with their children, that they need to talk with them. Uh, maybe a lot of the environment is good enough. And being good enough, it's difficult to show impacts by improving the curriculum in, 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 in an intervention for a broad array of four-year-olds. If that's true, or maybe if some of these other things are true, I think they lead to a set of policy uh, conclusions that I'm relatively comfortable with. One is that targeted investments make more sense than universal investments. If the kids most likely to be affected are the kids in greatest need, let's put the most of our resources in that area rather than spreading the, use, uh, the resource universally and thereby allowing parents who would otherwise pay for this out of their own pocket to get you know, free tuition for a pre preschool program. I would rather spend $10,000 a year on families in need than $5,000 a year on every family uh, with a four-year-old. I think that multi-year intensive uh, programs are more likely to have an impact 
than a program for four-year-olds. So let's start early. Let's have nurse visitation. <clears throat> let's have other interventions, again, on the kids who need it most, the families who need it most, that help them early on. And in doing that, let's, re let's uh, reformulate uh, the federal block grant program, which supports uh, parents who have to work because of, uh, of uh, welfare to work requirements. And basically, states are set up so that parents get a voucher. And uh, the more they can save on their pre-K expenses, the better they are. So they buy the cheapest thing they can find, which is not the way we want to go. Let's uh, continue to let parents choose. But let's provide them with information. It's a classic uh, government function. If you're in the stock market, you get uh, reports on, on, on the stock itself, on the, on, on the business underlying the stock, and those are regulated by the federal government. Let's let people understand the important choice they're making by real information on parent satisfaction and the progress of children as they go through various uh, programs. And let's, if we're going to do this at the federal level or the state level, let's construct systems that can learn systems that are subject to feedback loops, where we can find out what's working and what's not and move ahead. I think that is a recipe for a rational investment. I think the belief that uh, if we invest a dollar, we'll get $7 back, not paying attention to who we invested on or how we invest it is not rational. Thank you. Well, first, let me say I do not intend to revoke anyone's degree. <laughs> I should also say I do not intend to give anyone an honorary degree, so just don't get your hopes up. Um, there's a lot on the table, so let me just plunge right into the thick of things by talking first about the regression discontinuity design that we pioneered in Tulsa and that has now been used in uh, some other contexts to study the effects of pre-K in the United States. Uh, why would you use an exotic design like this in the first place rather than uh, a more garden variety design? The attractiveness of a regression discontinuity design, at least in this context, is that it moves you a long way towards addressing uh, selection bias as a threat to the internal validity of a research study. Uh, in many previous studies that have tried to assess the effectiveness of pre-K programs, selection bias was a real concern because uh, certain children and their parents chose to participate in a program while other children and their parents did not choose to participate in the program. The beauty of a regression discontinuity design applied to a pre-K context is that the students in the treatment group and the students in the control group both affirmatively chose that pre-K program. Or to be more precise, their parents affirmatively chose that pre-K program. So in principle, this should help you uh, to eliminate threats to internal validity that come from so-called unobservable variables that you can't measure because uh, it's really hard to measure something like motivation, the kind of motivation that would propel parent X to send a, a, a child to pre-K, but not parent Y. Uh, because both the students in the treatment group and the students in the control group 
had motivated parents who thought this would be a good thing for their child, you can uh, help to address this potential threat to internal validity. Now, obviously, when you're comparing these groups, you have to control for differences in the children's age. And that's quite clear. And we've done that. We control for the precise date of birth of every student in our analysis. And indeed, that makes perfect sense. And others have done that, too. You can also control for other demographic variables. Uh, we were very fortunate in our research in Tulsa to have a rich array of demographic variables at our fingertips, because in addition to having access to Tulsa Public Schools data, we also conducted a parent survey that gave us access uh, to important information on, let's say, mother's education, on whether or not the biological father was present at home, and some other variables as well. What's important about this is that we are able to see whether our treatment group children and our control group children actually resemble one another by looking at this array of demographic variables. And when we've done this over a, a series of studies, not just one study, we have almost always found no statistically significant differences in the demographic characteristics of the students in the treatment group and the control group. So to address Professor Armour's concern, he's right to, to raise the question of attrition. And you might imagine a world that in which the children in the treatment group uh, would uh, drop out, as he puts it, where, whereas the children in the control group do not drop out. I don't like the word drop out because it implies that they're literally dropping out of school. They're really moving from one school to another or from one city to another, not dropping out. But, but uh, certainly, one could conceive of a situation where that kind of attrition would pose a threat to internal validity. But in fact, we see that, there, that the treatment group kids and the control group kids in Tulsa look very, very similar in their uh, eligibility for a school lunch program. They look very similar in maternal education. They look very similar in other variables. They look very similar in gender. And so, yes, it's a, you definitely need to be concerned about uh, attrition. Uh, you, but you can address it through empirical evidence. And when we've addressed that question, we found, fortunately for our purposes, that the treatment group kids looked a really lot like the control group kids. Then, just to be extra careful, we controlled for all the characteristics through statistical means. But the, the truth of the matter is, even without those statistical controls, because our treatment group kids and our control group kids looked so similar, uh, the results wouldn't have mattered much either way. So uh, it is true that random, randomized controlled uh, trials have some advantages. Uh, but a randomized controlled trial is not necessarily uh, the only path to heaven. In fact, there are weaknesses in many uh, randomized controlled trials, including the ones that have been cited. Uh, one weakness uh, in the case of the Head Start randomized control trial 
is that some of the kids who are ostensibly control group kids wound up participating in a Head Start program. Uh, I think it was maybe for the four-year-olds about 18% of them. So that's a problem. Uh, just because you have a randomized control trial doesn't mean you've automatically and, and uh, in, in every possible way immunized yourself uh, against various uh, threats to your research design. Or to take the Tennessee, uh, the Tennessee program that's been discussed. Uh, in the case of the Tennessee program, they had problems gaining uh, parental consent to include the, uh, the, the children in their investigation. This was especially a problem for their first cohort. Not only was it a problem uh, in the absolute sense, but they had more difficulty uh, gaining consent from the non-participating uh, parents than from the participating parents. And so, here again, just because you have a randomized control trial doesn't necessarily mean that you have satisfactorily dealt with all potential threats to internal validity. In general, it seems to me that it makes sense to use uh, uh, lots of creative uh, research designs that fit the task at hand. Uh, if, if you have the funding for a randomized control trial and you get permission from all the relevant parties and you pull it off, that's great. But there are a lot of other uh, very respectable, credible, rigorous research designs out there, not only the re regression discontinuity design, but propensity score matching, difference and differences approaches. And I don't think we should uh, say that those studies uh, because they're not randomized control trials, uh, are somehow uh, less credible. I think you have to look at the individual studies one at a time and look at the many specific methodological decisions that the researchers had to make along the way. As for looking at NAEP scores, uh, I think that uh, there are some lessons you can learn uh, from uh, NAEP scores. But uh, NAEP scores were not really designed with researchers in mind. They were really designed for people, including public officials, who wanted to learn uh, something useful from trends. Uh, it's difficult to use NAEP scores uh, to do rigorous uh, uh, assessments of program impacts into the long run. Unless, of course, you have a lot of rich uh, control variables at your disposal. So when I look at some of the uh, studies using NAEP scores as the outcome variable, I would ask, well, have they controlled for all the relevant differences across states? For example, have they controlled for differences in K through 12 spending? Uh, Oklahoma happens to be a leader in pre-K, but they are most definitely not a leader in elementary and secondary education. They're, they're, at any rate, not a leader in, in terms of their spending levels, which rank 47th in the nation. Uh, you would also want to look at changes over time in uh, various subgroup populations, including especially the English language learner population. Uh, here also, it, we, we think that it's, it's uh, dangerous to look at the long-term effects of the Oklahoma program or the Georgia program, uh, for example, uh, without recognizing that the increase in English language learners in those two states has exceeded the national average in recent years. So there are methodological challenges uh, with lots of different uh, studies. 
Uh, on the other hand, the, the good news is that we do have lots of studies, and we can uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. People will probably disagree as to what's wheat and what's chaff. Uh, but there are, as Deborah suggested, some very good uh, meta-analyses that I think lead to, uh, lead to a couple conclusions. One is that high-quality pre-K today produces really big improvements in school readiness. Uh, that's certainly true of the Tulsa study. It's also true of the Boston study, of the New Jersey study, uh, and several others, not to mention the iconic studies that have been done uh, of so-called boutique programs like the Perry Preschool and the Absidarian Project. Uh, so just to give you an example from the Tulsa study from the latest round, for kindergarten students in Tulsa, the single best predictor of their verbal test scores is not race or income or maternal education or the presence of the biological father at home, but rather whether the child participated in pre-K. To me, that's a tremendous accomplishment that the folks in, in, in Tulsa were able to pull that off. And I give full credit to the teachers. As Deborah said, based on our classroom observations, the teachers in the Tulsa pre-K program are doing some wonderful things. And this is the result of it. Now, you might say, well, don't we really want to know if the effects last into the future? And the answer is absolutely. We do. We have found. Uh, tangible evidence that the uh, positive effects of the, of the Tulsa pre-K program are persisting through at least third grade. Um, but fade out is, is a problem. Uh, just about every person who's looked at this would agree with that. And so I guess my point of view would be uh, that we ought to try to roll up our sleeves and try to figure out exactly why uh, these uh, effects, the short-term effects are declining over time. I think one possibility is uh, the structure of our school year. If you look at uh, some of the KIPP charter schools, which rely on a longer school day and a longer school year, they seem to produ be producing some very good results. I think a longer uh, school year might be one way to reduce uh, fade out and or summer learning loss. Uh, another strategy might be to devote more uh, classroom time, especially in the early grades, to teaching social skills and executive functioning skills. There is some research that suggests that those uh, social skills can help to improve long-term outcomes for children, whether they've enrolled in preschool or not, and I think we ought to be more attentive to those uh, uh, pedagogical strategies in the classroom, especially during the early years. Uh, a third strategy uh, on which I'm uh, less fully informed would be to try to enlist parents as teachers uh, more fully and to get parents uh, more involved in the educational enterprise. The uh, Chicago uh, Child Parent Center's approach that uh, Art Reynolds has conducted has uh, produced some very impressive short-term and long-term 
results uh, based on a, a strategy that involves a significant role for parents. Finally, uh, one quick word about the targeting versus universalism. I think there is a case to be made for targeted programs, absolutely. The case for universal programs, uh, I think, is based in part on one's assessment of the importance of peer effects. There is a large body of literature, uh, especially in uh, elementary and secondary schools, that attests to the importance of social class peer effects. And uh, we're beginning to see some literature that points in the same direction uh, when looking at peer effects uh, for pre-K programs. That would be one reason to try to uh, design programs that have some middle class students uh, sitting alongside uh, disadvantaged students in the same classroom. Uh, another uh, factor in, in favor of uh, universal programs is that uh, the, the pre-K programs, if they're well designed, if they're high quality programs, do benefit these middle class kids. When we've looked at the results in Tulsa, for example, we have definitely found that middle class children are benefiting from participating in those programs. So I think that's uh, enough for, for round one, and I look forward to any questions you may have. Thank you. Well, I want to thank all our panelists, uh, and I should let you know, I forgot to mention this earlier, that Professor Phillips has to leave. Uh, she's got about seven minutes, and then she has to go for a meeting. So what I'd like to do is, if, you, if anybody has a question specifically for Professor Phillips, now would be a good time to ask it. Um, and so we'll, we'll do a 30-second window of opportunity if you have a question specifically for Dr. Phillips. If not, then we'll open it to everyone else. So anybody have a question specifically for, and we have one, good, right up here. One second. Oh, and please, I almost forgot, wait for the microphone. If you're affiliated with some group, please let us know, and please just ask a question. Uh, thank you all. Um, the uh, variables that you're looking at seem to be extraordinarily difficult to understand and control. So uh, uh, I'd like to see if uh, uh, Ms. Phillips, you could help uh, explain. There, there are just so many variables here, and maybe you could say something about the variables on, on both extremes. Uh, clearly, uh, parents have a lot to do with what happens here. Um, I wrote down a number of other ones, teachers, schools, uh, uh, poverty level. Uh, could you say something about uh, uh, how well does this work on both extremes? If, uh, for example, if you have parents that are extremely well-educated uh, and uh, uh, doing well economically, one might assume that their kids probably do well, and at the other extreme might assume they probably don't do well at all. So could you talk about those variables? Um, I'll, I'll certainly kick off a discussion of your question. I think Bill's final point about the Tulsa evidence where it was the enrollment or participation in pre-K that really beat out the effects of all those family level and income related variables um, as having the big bang for the buck in terms of school readiness of these kids is, is profoundly important and I hope relevant to your question. Um, in general, yes, parents, the biggest bang for the buck for most kids is what they get at home and from their parents, of course. And remember, from their parents, they're getting both genetics, 
and environment. So you get a double whammy from your families in most cases. And, and it, I want to harken back to something um, Russ actually said, because he raises the issue of, um, really to me it's a, it's a threshold question in a way, and it's a very important question of how much do you need to actually alter a child's environment in order to see you know, significantly affected developmental outcomes. Um, there's a lot of work going on now in our field looking at threshold effects, for example. Um, and in the preschool evidence, it's suggesting that the active range for impact is really from the middle of these so-called, when you assess quality, interactions, time on task, you know, you name it. It's really from kind of the average point on that scale on up where you begin to see impacts, which is not coincidentally where the Tulsa preschools and the Boston preschools ended up. We know nothing about the quality of the Tennessee program, for example. They didn't measure quality. It's very hard to change parenting. And you know, I'm very sympathetic, to, again, to what Russ is saying about it's, it's hard to change children's environments. It's a little easier to do so um, when you know where to target your investments in, um, in early childhood in, uh, care and education settings. It's not easy, but it's a little bit easier. I hope I addressed your question. Others may have more to, more to add. Does anybody else have any on the panel to add to that? Then I, I think uh, Professor Phillips has about two more minutes. So oh, I can uh, say slightly longer. So oh, go oh, ahead. Just open I it up and I'll chime I, in. If I, I focus <laughs> it all on you then. No. So now we will open it all up, I guess, for, for anybody. And thank, and thank you for staying as long as you minutes, can. Yeah. Okay, great. And so I think we have somebody right up here, right at the end of this. Second from the front. Uh, thanks to all of you. Um, I had a question about uh, some global comparisons. There's been a lot of interest in the PISA test results over the last few years and the um, stubborn and even declining uh, place of US education vis-a-vis -vis some other nations. What does uh, you know, the Finlands and the, and the Australias and the Canadas of the world tell us about the effect of uh, preschool education and test results. Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say nothing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I so happen to be analyzing PISA data um, for the past uh, couple of years, actually, with a, with a couple of my students who've uh, taken an interest in that, and uh, and I've helped them, but um, I don't. I, I think uh, Russ is right that most of those other countries don't have pre preschool programs, um, and probably right now our penetrate the level of preschool in our country is not big enough to, that it would show up in an effect with PISA. There are other reasons why the U.S. Uh, is behind, but that's really a different topic, I think, than than what we're talking about today. So the uh, the Economist did a a report not long ago in which they ranked of 45 nations in terms of providing access to a high-quality early childhood education. And uh, the U.S., uh, despite its uh, economic might and despite its long tradition of excellence in education, ranked only 24th out of 45. So we're, we're very much in the middle of the pack in terms of what we do for children in the earliest years. And I think that that has consequences uh, for our educational outcomes. 
and consequences for our economic outcomes as well. Part of that is also about prenatal care, for example, health care. We rank quite low. And actually, I know a fair amount about Australia. I've spent a lot of time there, and they're making um, very big investments in, in, in uh, quality preschool education. It's one of their priorities right now. All right, uh, we have a question right here in the front. Just wait one second for the microphone. Uh, thank you. Uh, a comment before my, my question. I happen to be a strong supporter of Head Start. I've worked in the program. I've been a clinician of providing home-based services to the families along with being in the classroom. And I sort of challenged when I did it in Seattle, all the teachers in the Head Start program did have a teaching degree. They were not. So when you single out Tulsa, Boston, and I, whatever, I'm, I, I, I wish you, I think you need to look a little further at the, what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but most Head Start programs, because they're granted in the school, the teachers are certified teachers. And my question is, and anyone can take this on, with your research and all these studies you're doing, are you doing too many studies on pre-K education and the importance of, yes, of parent involvement. And if you're not getting people to participate, uh, as Dr. Gormley said, maybe you should pay the parent or, or her guardian to participate in your study if it will give an objective outcome. And so when you're doing your studies and you're presenting these policies and recommendations, are people getting out of the boardroom and into the streets to see if they're working? And if they are, fine. And if they're not, you need to change them. Thank you. Anybody want to comment on that? I'm a big believer in Head Start. I think it's terrific. I don't think you need to reinvent the wheel. So you're doing all these other studies. How many educational studies do we need and money spent on pre-K and grants and stuff to come up with something by now that has been going on for years and years and years? So if I can, maybe I, I get the question. So sense? the question is, why aren't we now focusing on what we think we see works and replicating it? Is that the question? Well, yeah, Instead of doing know, more we studies. We know our outcome with Head Start, at the end of the year, you have to give the data in in order to get the grant money again to show that you've proven the outcome. And pre-K is sort of the in thing these days. But we know that Head Start works. Well, this sort of addresses, I think, the point that of the forum. Because is, I guess the question is, are we certain that, based on the research we have, that Head Start and other things work? And do we know why they're working? Well, I mean, I, you know, one of the reasons I, uh, I didn't want to respond is that your assertions are just so far from the facts that I didn't want to have to tell you that. But since you forced me, uh, I mean, the, we, we have the National Head Start impact study. It uh, involved a representative sample of Head Start programs around the, around the country that were oversubscribed. That is, Head Start programs where there were more parents seeking entry for their kids than there were slots. They used random assignment then to decide who got in. That's fair, and it serves the purpose of, uh, of, of, of the experiment. And, and what did we find from that? We found some positive outcomes at the end of the Head Start year. I think these are outcomes on things that are teachable. Uh, 
And so if you want children to learn the letters of the alphabet, and you want them to learn their letters when they're four years old, if there's a program that gives them the opportunity to learn that, they will learn it. And if they're not in a program, they will not learn it. And so these easily teachable skills you find impacts on at the end of a pre-K year when those skills are incorporated in the curriculum of the pre-K year. But there were no impacts in kindergarten. There were no impacts in first grade. There were no impacts in second grade. So how can you say Head Start works when its its, uh, mission, according to legislation and according to its own website, is to increase the academic outcomes of kids who participate in Head Start. It has no effect. Um, uh, Dr. Phillips mentioned fade out. I think an actually a more accurate term is catch up. The kind of skills taught in pre-K, it is true. The reason there's a pre-K effect is because these skills may not be being taught by parents. But once kindergarten starts and first grade, these skills are taught and to everybody, uh, and, and the, the kids who didn't have preschool catch up. So you call it a fade out, but it's also a catch up. And it's easy in some cases for kids to catch up on these kinds of skills. And, and Ted, on, on the teacher degree thing, uh, we, we have pretty good research showing that the presence or absence of a baccalaureate degree is not correlated with teacher effectiveness in, 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 the, in the classroom. So. It's one of the things that seems obviously important. It's often taken as an index of quality, but doesn't actually have an association with child outcomes. Well, uh, we, we'll have to move on, but you did get right to the heart of what we're trying to get at, and, and that's good. And now it's opened up even more questions. So I've been, it looks like most of the questioners are in the front. So we'll go, we'll go right to the middle there, and then we'll get you right over here. So there's a lady right in the middle of the second row. Just please wait for the microphone, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next front Hi, I'm from the OECD, so I'm happy to hear that people are getting into the PISA work. Uh, and I just wanted to say um, that um, regarding Finland, which has always been one of the top ones, um, in my, my reading of the PISA stuff, but I can't say that I'm, I mean, I'm sort of a generalist there, so I'm not as deeply into it, but, but in Finland, the children don't even actually go to school till they're seven years old. And I think, um, and I, now I'm going to also but, speak. Just real, sorry to interrupt, but can we thank Professor Pellis oh, yes. for finally so, asking. Okay. <laughs> thanks for staying with you after Um And I, you know, I, I also had a child who went to lots of preschools starting at two, um, because I was working. And I think that the the thing is that in the absence of a good home environment where children are being taught letters and numeracy, and one of the reasons these Chinese kids are doing so well is because they have grandparents who are teaching them how to write and count from the time they're three years old. I taught in China for five years. The, dis- the, the information that we're getting in PISA tells us something, but there's an awful lot that it doesn't tell us. And um, I think the issue is if you're talking about kids who come from very disadvantaged environments and do, are not going to have a parent at home who's going to coach them in math and reading, sh- clearly they're going to get something out of, um, you know, out of preschool. But yes, if they didn't have it, if they're smart enough, they most of them maybe would catch up. That's really, I think, the, the issue, because I don't know that we can say if, if you had a great environment at home and someone really devoted to tutoring you, you might be way ahead of a kid who'd gone to Head Start. 
So, so is your question, just to try and summarize, is it that we, it's hard to use PISA because there might be things that are part of the culture that go on at the homes that, that some government intervention perhaps wouldn't be able to address? Is that the question? And then, and then I'm just saying the PISA results are, you know, that you need to know a lot about all the different cultures um, and what's really going on in the education systems there. It's very difficult to generalize from the um, outcomes. Should I just pass? And is there any disagreement with that at the, at the table? Okay. I like um, the idea of enlisting parents and grandparents in the enterprise. I think that they can reinforce some of the good things that preschool programs do. Uh, and in some instances, they can substitute for them. Uh, I would just say, though, based on our research in, in Tulsa, that even middle-class children, including middle-class children uh, whose mother has a college degree, benefit from participation in a high-quality pre-K program. Okay, right in front. I was only going to comment that I read that in Finland, children didn't start school till they were seven, and they do, you know, pretty well. And I just wondered if the panel realized that in Finland, they start school at seven, and they don't get any education before that. They still do pretty well. I would say that most of uh, the developed countries that are heavily invested in so-called pre-K programs, uh, pre-K programs don't look at all like what we think of as a pre-K program here. They are, uh, you know, 24-7 uh, drop-off, uh, uh, good uh, daycare circumstances. There's generally no emphasis on pre-academic skills or cognitive development. So a very different c concept uh, of how to deliver such services than we have. and so. Whenever you're talking about PISA data or any international comparisons, you have to be very careful because there are lots of things, and I agree with you, lots of things going on underneath the surface. There are hundreds of variables at play, and you can't isolate the one or two that you think might be important. At least you can't in a research context. Okay, well, stick with the middle, and then we'll, we'll also get you next, but right in the middle here. Thank you. I'm Pat Lenahan from George Mason University. Uh, I'd like to focus this to question to Professor Gormley. You've mentioned a few times the uh, high-quality pre-K programs. Uh, what, what is your definition of or the characteristics of a high-quality preschool program? That's a very good question. Uh, I think that, that we have often uh, been forced to define preschool quality in the absence of, of good data, uh, focusing on educational inputs. And so we have focused on whether the teacher has a bachelor's degree, whether the teacher is early childhood certified. Uh, and I think as Russ points out, uh, there, there is growing evidence that that may not be a very good predictor of real quality, which is what goes on in the classroom. If you actually look inside the classroom, there are some uh, observational instruments out there like the class instrument that was developed by Bob Pianta at the University of Virginia that can give you a very rich, uh, uh, fine-grained analysis of the level of instructional support and the level of emotional support that takes place inside the pre-K classroom. Uh, if I could add a comment on quality, um, and I'm, I, I think there appears to be agreement in the panel that the Certified teacher is not necessarily the issue, although there's some writings out there that imply that that's a key element, and Head Start doesn't have that requirement. Uh, in terms of the curriculum, 
Um, unfortunately, with the high quality programs that, that we've been talking about here, Tulsa, New Jersey, and, and Boston, only New Jersey uh, has a measure of curriculum quality similar uh, to what uh, Head Start has used for its curriculum evaluations. And in that one comparison, uh, the Head Start, when the Head Start evaluation was done, it actually showed higher classroom quality, instructional quality, than the New Jersey Abbott program, which is a statewide program there, which, and the Abbott program has shown these very large jumps that Head Start doesn't. So uh, I, I remain uh, skeptical that uh, curriculum quality is, is the key for why Head Start doesn't uh, have an effect. Okay, we have time for one last question, and that is you, and just please wait for the microphone. It has to be a really good question to finish this off. Oh, it's right. provocative. Oh, very good. Uh, no Sean, pressure, though. Sean Steele-Griffin with uh, Collaborative Communications. And uh, uh, my question, having worked both on the policy side and, and also sort of the policy to practice side, is, uh, and might come back to the question from, from, our, from the woman up front, is in a time of constrained resources, both uh, federal resources and philanthropic resources, what is the right balance of research and investment in the actual programs? And do you think we have struck that balance or are we, are we getting near to that balance? Yeah, I'd love to respond to that since my job, <laughs> my job used to be to argue that uh, we were way out of balance. So I'm gonna repeat that argument. Uh, if you look at the discretionary budget of the Department of Health, of, of, of Health and Human Services, uh, last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, 42% was invested in knowledge acquisition through the Centers for Disease Control, through the National Institutes of Health, and other investments. Uh, the premise being that health is very much going to be a function of what we know about how to improve health. If you look at the research budget of the U.S. Department of Education relevant to its overall discretionary budget, it's less than 1%. Why would we expect to know well how to deliver effective preschool services to the children and families who need it most with an investment that is embarrassing in the, no in the context of any other knowledge-intensive industry? We are at the point in education, in terms of our knowledge base, that medicine was in 1923. And we're not going to get to the 21st century until we're willing to invest in knowledge acquisition. There's just a lot we don't know. We ought to be learning, and it takes some degree of investment uh, to get there. So I strongly agree that we do need more research in this area. Uh, I think I would add, though, that it's important that the research designs be credible and rigorous, that that is ultimately the right criterion, rather than that the research design be a randomized control trial. <laughs> okay, well, with that, I, an excellent last question. Thank you for bringing us home. Uh, I want to thank the panel. Please, everyone, thank the panelists for coming today. Um, I want to thank everyone in attendance, all the hardy souls who braved the Arctic vortex. Uh, to get here, and your reward is lunch upstairs. Thank you very much.